Welcome back and to series two of The Skin Pod with me, Louise Thomas-Mins, skin health therapist, educator, product founder and serial entrepreneur. I am excited to bring you once again a whole host of special guests who all have one thing in common, an interest, an obsession in skincare. Before we get going with this week's episode, I want to tell you about the sponsors of this series, which happens to be very close to my heart, as it's Louise Thomas Skincare, a real labour of love uh, that started some 18 years ago, um, was to develop and formulate my own signature skincare range. Seven years ago, I started this process and earlier in 2022, I launched the first in the range, The Cleanser. It's really been a tough ride to get to launch with my vision being quite a simple one. Through my passion, expertise and education, I aim to empower everybody to take control of their skin health. You can learn more about my mission and the products at louisethomasskincare.co.uk. I have a database of beauty brands. It has over 27,000 brands in it now. Oh my goodness. Then it's like, yeah, 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 we have a target audience. It's uh, women and men from uh, 15 to 60 that, uh, (laughs) you know, breathe air. (laughs) I actually cut and color my own hair. I've done that since I was like 15. Do you? is a beauty industry market research specialist. She talks eloquently about cruelty-free, indie beauty, sustainable beauty and cosmetics packaging and design on her platforms. I came across her very well-organised data on LinkedIn and I am delighted that she joins me now. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Where in the world are you as well? Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Happy to be chatting with you. I'm uh, in Stockholm, Sweden. Oh my goodness, that's on my list. It's on my list to visit. So um, yeah, we won't go into that. Otherwise, the whole episode, we'll just be talking about Stockholm and where it I is, need to go. It is a lovely city. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll look forward to coming over and um, yeah, maybe get to actually meet you one day. But I am really excited and keen to kind of dive into, and I'm really intrigued actually as well about what you do and your your LinkedIn posts in the nicest sense, I find quite a little bit addictive because I'm really drawn to them. And I just find it fascinating how you come up with the insights and your data into the beauty industry. How on earth did you get into this? Has it been sort of something that you've worked towards for a while? Or is it something that's just sort of evolved from nowhere? The way that I started, so I have a database of beauty brands. It has over 27,000 brands in it now. Oh my goodness. It's not complete data for all of them, but, uh, you know, I'm working on it. The way that it started actually was I really wanted to make sure to like support brands that are cruelty free. And I started making a list in a spreadsheet of brands that were cruelty free and then also a vegan to know like you know it's mm-hmm. good to have a list to know also if somebody else asks me I could recommend them but then 
you know, I also have to add the brands that are not cruelty-free to know that they are not. Otherwise, maybe I just didn't check them yet. So I start adding that and I start adding more data points. Oh, and I have to add if they have certifications and what certification. And I have to add which other kind of claims they make. And I just kept building on it. And I'd already been doing that just as a personal kind of project. I just love collecting information and learning and finding new things. So, But when I started my business, it just made sense to niche into the beauty industry. At the beginning, I was doing brand identity and packaging design for beauty brands. Okay. Yeah. And then it's just made more sense for me to focus on the research because I enjoy it a lot. And I think there's not as many people who can do that the way that I do as there are other designers who can design. Yeah. So design is still, is that sort of, I don't mean to this in a derogatory way, that's your main job, but you are still a designer. So you still offer that service, but then this sort of data capturing and research has built alongside that, or are you now really switching more towards the market research and the data side of things? The way I see it, I'm mainly focusing on consulting and the market research. And if there's a project to do the design and design the packaging and the brand identity that makes sense that I feel like, yeah, this is the project where I want to do that. And I feel like that I'm the person who could do a good job in it, then maybe, but it's not what I'm focusing on. So how do you work with brands then? So now I'm delighted that I can say that I'm a a brand owner and obviously into the formulation game. So if I was to come to you, what would you do for us? How do you work with brands? How do you help them? And does that then have a knock-on effect to the consumer? I'm intrigued to know sort of, yeah, what that journey's like when you start working with a brand. Yeah, I think we all know that there is a lot of brands who you can even tell from the outside did not really do their research and they've just created it in a vacuum in secret and not really talking to anyone and I feel like we get a lot of brands that are very, very similar, that are just doing the same thing. They're not really differentiating themselves. So a lot of what I do is helping with the market research that you, (laughs) brands, you know, you should know what your competitors are and also helping them understand kind of who are the main players in their category, who are brands maybe that weren't on their radar there that are doing similar things and really help you figure out how to stand out against your competitors to create something that is a bit more unique and that will be, you know, find kind of a space in the market. So I think that's how it goes to the consumers that there are always people who are looking for something that's not out there and kind of capturing that and addressing a market that isn't being served, I think is a place where having the market research to know that there actually aren't brands who are really satisfying this need, I think is a great way to achieve that. Okay, so yeah, that makes sense. And and actually, I do understand why a brand would need help with sort of clarifying perhaps what their, their I hate the term USP actually, but what their, you know, their USP is, what is their niche. But at the same time, I also kind of feel like if you have done that research in terms of whether that's organic, whether that's just sort of evolved almost by accident, which probably is what happened with me. You know, it was a pipe dream, but then actually rolled on from all of those years of research with my hand, you know, my clients that I've been treating for 20 odd years. Would a brand come to you and say, we've got an idea for a product, but we actually don't know what 
our niches? Like, how can we make this a bit different to other brands that perhaps have something similar? Is that something that they would also do as well? Yeah, I mean, I also offer help with consulting with uh, figuring out really like what more exactly is your target audience? What more exactly is it that what is your positioning? Which I think it's very important. I think a common mistake brands make is to try to appeal to everyone. Like it's for all skin types. It's for everyone, every age. You know, I talk to a lot of brands that are just starting up and it's like, yeah, 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 we have a target audience. It's uh, women and men from uh, 15 to 60 that, uh, <laughs> you know, breathe air. <laughs> An actual one that's very common is that, you know, it's a woman in her 20s or 30s and she has a job and she's very busy with her work life and she needs whatever thing <laughs> they're, they're creating. And I think there's a lot more you can do, like be a lot more focused Okay, but who is it for? Like, who more specifically? Because the way you kind of get people to find and discover your brand is by appealing to people who are looking for it. They're looking for this. They're looking for a brand that is very good for sensitive skin, but it also has a really cute branding and it's really fun and it comes at this price point and it's available to me here. But maybe there isn't something like that. And then you can create something that's for a very specific audience and... I think that's really how you find people that'll be really, really excited about your brand. I find it really fascinating how you can look at a brand, can't you? So you could look at a product, a bottle, a poster, you know, whatever that brand is. And I think if it's done really well, you can kind of know immediately who that's targeting which just fascinates me. And it happens, I think, for me on the other way around, that when I'm looking, perhaps as we are now, we're sort of really blessed to be talking with some retailers and we're working out our path. You can tell, or I can tell really quickly, yeah, that's where our our people shop. That's where they're going to buy from. And also, oh, that just doesn't feel right for us. So, and I don't know whether that's just because I'm the brand owner, the founder, or whether that's because I had somebody that helped me a lot with that brand journey. And I obviously had a really good understanding of who my target market is. But it is amazing, isn't it? When you can do that with a product and go, yep, I know exactly that that's for the millennials or, you know, that's for a male market or. Definitely. I mean, I think uh, I'd imagine for you, since you've worked with, you know, your clients who come to you to get help with their skin, you have probably a pretty good understanding of the type of person that you're serving, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot of people are not talking to customers and do not have that part where they can really imagine the person that it's for. It's like, oh, it's like kind of like for people like me. Or even sometimes people start a brand that's like, oh, it's for this imagined person, the other thing too, I mean, I see a lot of brands that are like, we have this new, completely unique, special thing. And it's like, really? <laughs> Is it though? <laughs> uh, never heard that before. Like sometimes I feel like I don't even have to Google and I know there's probably five other brands making the same kind of claim of being special in the exact same way. Because there's just so many brands. I think people be would oh be surprised. Goodness. There are so many brands that they've put effort and time into creating their brand, but you're never going to hear of them. It has to be that good to really make it, right? 
there are so many brands that kind of get created and a couple years down the line, they're not there anymore. Yeah. And do you think as well, so does your work also then cross over with talking to that audience in terms of social media? So do you think those brands, it's an emotional connection, isn't it? I think we all have with products as well. So do you think the brands that are still about that are the ones that you look at that maybe you go, yeah, you are going to still be here in 10 years time. Do you think that's because they are really good at communicating their values? Or is it literally just down to having help from somebody like you going, right, let's look at this data. Yeah, this is where this is our target market. These are where our people hang out. And therefore, we're just going to make sure that we sell in that place. And that's how we're going to get our brand out there and and have success. I think as with everything, there's always, you know, everything goes into it. There's never just the one thing. But in general, I think brands that can communicate really what their product is. There's a lot of brands that are celebrity brands, but I don't think that's the key. I think it more is that there are brands that there's a person that is taking accountability for the brand that consumers trust, like Glow Recipe, for example, their founders are very out and in front. And these are people, they're humans behind this brand. And I think that makes a big difference because a lot of the brands that I feel like don't get it, the traction are often brands where even looking at it, I'm trying to read everything on their website and I have no understanding of who the person that is creating this or why they're creating it really is. I think it's also communicating what is your product? What does it do? What is it like? What Who is it for? Like I see brands that are saying this gel moisturizer is for dry skin and all the reviews say, well, it's probably good for somebody with oily skin. It wasn't really for me. Or, you know, I think a lot of brands miss out on when I'm shopping online, I want to know what does it smell like? Tell me. Does it have a scent to it? I'd like to know. Yeah, that's a good point. What does the texture looks like? Is this a real product? I think it looks nice to have like a 3D rendering sometimes, but take a real photo of it, please. Because <laughs> it can look so fake. There's no human. It's just 3D renderings. And it's like, is this a scam? It looks really, you know, suspicious kind of. That is the joy that I feel that the consumer is now really understanding the importance. We were just talking about this before we started, weren't we, about authenticity, being honest and transparent. And that's definitely the values of our brand that if I can't do something, let's get into it. We were talking about greenwashing, weren't we? And I was saying to you that the challenge for us at the moment as a startup, as an indie brand, we've had lots of challenges to get here. And thankfully, finally, we got one of the five products off the ground and launched. But I know that at the moment we can't afford to do a lot of the the sort of sustainable side of things that that a lot of the big brands can do. But I also will not just tick a box because I feel the pressure of doing that. And I know you said that that's something you're really passionate about is actually making sure that, you know, if you can't do something as a brand, just be honest, just put your hands up and say, we're not there yet. We're trying, we're doing our bit, but we can't do this yet. But this is what we're trying to do to work towards it. So is kind of the sustainability and the greenwashing side of things, is that something that you do quite a lot of work on for brands? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm very personally invested in. And whenever I see greenwashing, I'm like, 
am I the crazy one? And I just start reading articles and any studies I can find and like learning about it. And that tends to happen often because there's quite a lot of that in the industry, sadly. And uh, like I was telling you earlier, I think it's very easy to not greenwash because you just have to not lie about being sustainable because that's what greenwashing is. It's a lie saying we're sustainable when really you're not and you're not doing the work. And I understand that, especially for new brands starting up, there are a lot of things that can make it difficult to choose the more sustainable material. Let's not beat around a bush. I think anything that's not plastic is generally better if that is an option that is possible. But if it's not, then I think the best thing to do is to be honest because telling consumers that this plastic can be recycled I think does more damage than even using the plastic does because it just helps the corporation say that the plastic is recyclable. It helps everybody else do that. And it just continues this misconception where consumers just get frustrated because they don't know because people are lying and it doesn't make sense to them because they're being lied to. And I think it really robs consumers of their own agency around making choices that do I want to choose this product? And if they say this is sustainable, oh, but they're both sustainable, then I'll choose this. But if they knew that it wasn't, then they'd choose something else. That's really, it really comes down to just robbing consumers of their agency around their choices. Yeah, actually. And do you know what? I can talk of an actual experience that we're going through at the moment. So with with a cleanser, it's in a plastic bottle. I'm glad you're not in the room because you might throw something at me. No, no, don't worry. I <laughs> I mean, I even buy products that are in plastic. I'm not a, a purist. It's difficult not to, isn't it? But the reasons behind that for us was it's a cleansing product. The rest of the brand at the moment is going to be in glass, but don't really want a glass bottle in your shower because it's a wash. Travelling, makes it difficult. So there was some practical decisions around it. And we did our best with looking at inverted commas, what's the best bottle that could be recycled. However, down the line, our sort of plans are, can we refill this bottle? Yeah, we can, because there's no pump component. It's really easy to refill it. We also spoke to a brilliant, innovative company recently about having a recycling system for our customers. So they could send back our bottle, but also lots of others. They would be recycled and made into something else that we could then use, which I was like, this is brilliant. I love this. This is how we can start to work our way towards, you know, doing our bit, because that's, of course, what we want to do. But then (laughs) the sticking point was, we can't afford the overheads that are around that recycling system. It's huge for us as a small brand. It's It would be like having a whole massive office space per month to pay for. It's just so frustrating. So all we can do at the moment is go, we've got our eyes on this and we're working towards this. But yeah, you're right. It's It's challenging for startups. I think it's better to be honest. I see some brands being more transparent about it. One that I saw that I appreciated was uh, Dam Dam. They're a Japanese brand that actually launched at Sephora not too long ago in the US. And on their website, last time I checked at least, they say that, you know, we've looked into different options. We looked into bioplastic and uh, options like that. But from us looking into it, we saw that it would actually be worse than what we're using and we're looking into it we're looking into other materials and it's just something that they're working on and i love them saying that 
it's refreshing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's not us being ignorant or, and there's, you know, an arrogant and just going, oh, well, we're not, yeah, we're not going to do that. We, of course we want to do that. But I think, yeah, just being honest and, and really open and actually then get the consumer almost to help you on that journey as well. You know, get the consumer to kind of come on board with you and follow that progress. And there are challenges out there as well. What other categories then do you look at when you're sort of doing your research and collating your data? So obviously cruelty-free and sustainability are up there, but what other things, what other types of things would brands want to know from you when it comes to data? I gather all kinds of data points, really. For brands, I look at uh, who owns it, who's the founder, the people behind it when it was founded. I look at what products they have. I also have like 14,000 products in the database. where I, So I have the information on pricing, size, ingredients, and pictures of the packaging. And uh, I also tag the appearance of the packaging, like what type of packaging, what material is it, the, the shape, the color. So I can easily find all the packaging that is, uh, you know, pink and mint green and uh, for wow. this type of product. So I think that also helps too. Your spreadsheet skills must be just like off the scale, Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, I, I use a program called Airtable for the database. I was going to say, I bet it's a bit more sophisticated than a spreadsheet but, but <laughs> I, a little tally I, chart. I still, I still use Excel too for something, so for sure. I am a big fan of spreadsheets. I enjoy them. I know a lot of people don't, but... Oh, I'm going to have to ask you for some tips then on the spreadsheets at some point. Can we talk a bit about social media? And because I know that, you know, you've, you're prevalent on Instagram, but you also, of course, it, it makes sense that you do a lot of work on LinkedIn as well. Is that something else that you can assist brands with? Have you got sort of insights or opinions to where things are going with social media and that side of things for brands? Yeah, I mean, as you know, I track brands' performance on Instagram and also to some extent on TikTok also. For Instagram, it's not just the brands that I, I do monthly top 100 lists for Instagram for skincare, makeup and hair care. But I actually track the performance of almost 4,000 brands monthly now that I update. Wow. And, you know, I have to know which brands are up and coming that are gaining traction to know to add them to the list. I think definitely it's worth investing in quality content, like working with, you know, good photographers and making sure you have high quality stuff to post. But I think generally I would recommend brands work instead of paying for ads on Instagram and paying for ads on Facebook, which I know can be a huge cost. Just imagine investing that money into working with influencers and working with people who care about skincare, who are really into that. And instead of giving that money to, you know, Facebook, which also owns Instagram, you can uh, give it to people in the community and work with them. Now, oh, now you see, that's interesting. I like that. But that's a slightly different thought process, perhaps from other people that I've spoken to who kind of feel like the influencer side of things is a bit of a dying art but actually, I'd, it makes sense what you're saying that rather than, yeah, sort of putting your trust into the Facebook effectively to kind of promote your product, that actually you're talking to people that are within your target market that hopefully like you as a brand. Do you think there's more value in aligning yourself with, say, one or two people as opposed to that sort of scattergunning approach of old where brands would literally send out, I don't know, 
100 products to 100 kind of top influencers? I think it's important to be clear on what you're looking to get from it. Like, what is the goal? Because sometimes you want to work with uh, influencers, you know, because they have reach, but I don't necessarily think it's always that's the best thing. I mean, it's also good to work with influencers that take nice photos and pay them, pay them fairly for it also. I think making sure you get influencers that are actually would be interested in your brand to work with, I think should be uh, the focus. Like people who would actually be excited to try your product that are the people you're targeting. I think that that kind of thing is more important than them having the biggest audience. It's more important to get to the people who would really care than to just get seen by as many people as possible, which is what having like kind of that ads on Instagram and uh, Facebook is doing really. I think it's just really like working with influencers in a way that's fair and uh, where you're, you know, fairly compensating them. <laughs> One thing that's so frustrating, like, that I, I don't know if brands think about this, but if you send product and you, in exchange for it, have that they have to post or have to do something, then that counts as payment legally. And they would have to pay taxes on getting products as payment for work. If you're sending it to them just, and they can do whatever they want with it, you know, if they if they like it, they'll post about it. And I think that's good feedback to get that, you know, if people aren't <laughs> really posting anything, then maybe you're not targeting the right people. True. And that's really valuable to get that kind of insight too. And really products don't cost us as much as they're sold for. So it's not like it's a big loss if you just sent a product. One of the worst things that I hear that some brands are doing with social media when they're working with influencers is I talk to a lot of people who are on the influencer side. I actually used to be like a fashion blogger. I used to get stuff sent to me way back, like in the alternative fashion scene, kind of is where it was. So I have a lot of friends that are on, on that side of things. And there are some brands where they will actually work with influencers and pay uh, POC influencers less. And that comes out. <laughs> because people talk to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't understand how brands like will mess that up and that happens still. That's just so like, what's that worth the, the little money you saved on not paying them the same? Again, we could go back to that word authenticity. It just becomes really unauthentic. And I'm, we really, you know, like I say, we, we've only launched in March, but already I'm really, really aware of who we send a product to. And we haven't actually sent hardly any products out at all. And I'm really lucky to have some great people sort of on my side that happen to be fantastic influencers. But actually, the nice thing about that is I know that that's coming from a place, a genuine place. It's a place of we've watched you We've seen your journey and your story, and I'd love to use your cleanser and I'd love to share and talk about it. So we're definitely not at that point where we can even afford to send X amount of product out because we're doing such small runs. But yeah, that that is where it just all goes a bit wrong, isn't it? If you're not having that sort of across the board, this is fairly what we do and we do this for everybody. Yeah, it gets missed. I think that's also important with who you choose to work with as a brand, like what kind of contractors and other people, because I think sometimes that's handled by someone else. Yeah, true. I think it's important to find people that are aligned with your values, that understand, you know, what's important to you and your brand. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and one of those things that we did, you know, obviously at the start of all this, but we revisited it really recently and it was so valuable was just that actually concreting. What do we stand for? I'm using the royal we because it really is just me and my husband. But we do have a couple of people that we subcontract to. But thankfully, because it's so small, <laughs> we're all on the same page because it's really easy to go, hang on, don't forget, that's what we stand for. We, you know, we'll get to the point where we'll be a big corporation and we'll have to make sure that those values are even clearer. But it's such, it's a very basic, but a really valuable exercise to do, actually, to really have your mission statement and know what you stand for. Um, are there any, I'm going to say skincare, but we can sort of open it up to beauty, but any kind of trends that you're seeing come through that you think oh that's really interesting or that you think would surprise us it's hard to know what's surprising to other people because you know <laughs> it's true what yes. feels obvious to you might not be to others but this is true <laughs> something that i'm a big fan of is the trend of more solid uh, products not just in hair care but also in skincare. oh uh, yeah yeah. That's a really interesting category. There are more brands doing like facial cleansers, but also facial serums and uh, moisturizers that are in solid format. There are a lot of sustainability benefits there with being waterless, not using as much water in production. Also for packaging, often these products are packaged in paper packaging, which is a yeah great option. And uh, it really allows brands to design with sustainability in mind from the beginning with the format of the product that they're doing. So I think that's a really exciting category. And I think there's going to be a lot of new types of products coming into the solid, but also other waterless product. There are some skincare brands that have uh, like powder that you mix with water <gasps> on your own. Yes, I love those. <laughs> yeah, like one brand, uh, Lani, they have this cleanser that it's just a powder, but when you mix it, it turns blue, like a really nice blue color. And it has this really soft mint uh, scent with like a, just a hint of vanilla in it. So it's very soft, minty, such a nice creamy cleanser. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, really clever ideas. I love, I love seeing those kind of innovations. And that I think for me was... Definitely when I was at my happiest was when I was in the lab with the chemist that we used here in the UK. That for me was really important. I didn't want to do white label, nothing against anyone that does that. But for me, it needed to be my ideas, my formulations with, of course, an expert. But that's when it gets exciting, when you can start playing with lots of different formats and consistencies as well. I'm just going to interrupt your listening there for a few minutes because I am so excited, beyond excited, to let you know that we have managed to launch our second product in the Louise Thomas skincare range. If you hang on all the way to the end and the fly on the wall section, you'll hear a little bit more about this journey and then you'll understand it's been quite that journey. So let me tell you a bit about the hydrator. Well, it is a hybrid moisturiser giving you 365 days of luminosity to your skin. And when I say hybrid, what I mean by that is that it has some really beautiful, almost serum-like actives, 
within your moisturiser, making it a great product, a cost-effective way of delivering really nice uh, botanicals and active ingredients to your skin, coupled with some great hydration. It's a 24-hour cream, so you can use it morning and evening. You will, of course, need to put your sunscreen over the top in the morning. And it contains Tasman pepperberry, which is protecting, calming and great for sensitised skin. I've also chosen a really superior form of vitamin C, which offers exceptional absorption, resulting in radiance and a brighter complexion. And of course, like the cleanser, it's developed with our unique moisturising complex that means that when you use this, it supports that all important lipid barrier that I am obsessed with as a skin health expert and always talking to my clients about. We need to build and replace those amazing barrier lipids for the skin to be able to thrive and function. We're really proud that this product is made in the UK and it's also vegan friendly too. So if you're a vegan, you're going to love it. You can shop the hydrator at louisethomasskincare.co.uk. Something I ask every guest, I'm fascinated with people's skincare rituals. So I love to know about their things that maybe influenced them when they were growing up, maybe things that they go, oh yeah, do you know what? I still do that because I saw my brother doing that or my dad doing that. So I'd love to know, and it doesn't matter if there are none because that equally is interesting, but are there any kind of rituals that you observed growing up that you feel influenced you a little bit or has stayed with you or were just funny and quirky? I don't know that I've have any particular beauty routines like that come from my childhood. I mean, I guess one thing that is actually cut and color my own hair. I've done that since I was like 15. Do you? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Can I just say Jennifer's hair? Wow. Is amazing. It's a beautiful shade of blue as well. Uh, You need to go and check her out on Instagram. I can't believe that. Oh my goodness. I'd be so scared of doing that. I actually used to cut the the hair of my friends. Uh, Like I mentioned, I used to be in the alternative fashion scene. So I'd, you know, I'd cut a really nice kind of cool hairstyles for my friends. and Oh my goodness. That's something that I still still do now, so. That's a pretty major ritual. That, that's amazing. Oh, well, fantastic. And have you, do you change your hair colour quite often or is that your sort of go-to? I think I've had all of the hair colours at some point. <laughs> Brilliant. I used to have like a rainbow, like in my friend, just like the rainbow. And that was really cool. I've been wow. I've been on the blue for like a while. I had pink again for a little bit and then went back to blue, but you know, I might change. I might I might go for something else next time. You never know. Yeah. Maybe having two colors. Exactly. You wear it well. You wear it very very well. Thank you. What is next for you, Jennifer? Is anything kind of coming up exciting from a personal viewpoint or from a a business viewpoint that you can share with us? One thing that's coming in a little bit is I have a beauty award that I've been doing for two years, Beauty Design Awards. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. uh, It's not just about packaging design. It is the design holistically of the product as being everything for the product makes sense together, like as a whole, like the formulation, the feel and use of the product. And yeah, just everything as a whole package is what's being judged for it. But yeah, it's really fun. So the finalists get announced in October, so there's some time left. But I'm currently 
getting some some brands are like sending in uh, products for we've been like trying products throughout the beginning of the year but yeah it'll be the third year doing this oh my goodness so this is something that you organize it's an award that you put together and brands obviously can enter and then judged solely by you or do you have like a panel of judges that do that well up to now it's been mostly me, me doing pretty much all of the work you can find more i have a website for it it's beautydesignawards.com so fairly easy it's free to enter because i think that you can't really choose the best if you're just choosing from people who happened to enter oh hallelujah yes i agree <laughs> i think there's some issues with some of the awards around where Maybe, you know, they're kind of benefiting from having certain brands and products included. And I'm just trying to spotlight brands that are creating really cool, really, really fun and interesting new kind of product. A big value for me with my business in general is I want to help the independent beauty brands take market share from big corporations. I won't work with brands owned by any of the like big global corporations you know, I believe my work does help the brands I work with and I want to help independent brands that, you know, want to do better and can create things that people really want instead of kind of getting people to buy stuff that maybe they don't want. They just kind of like feel like they need to have it because they got told yeah. they need to have it. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, and, and what a brilliant, if that is your mission statement, then that's just fabulous. And if brands, you know, there may be some brands listening, if they want to come and learn more about what you do or book a conversation with you. So you've mentioned the beautydesignawards.com. So I'm going to check that out. But also for brands or just even for the consumers, if they want to sort of come and find out about what you do and maybe learn about some more about that data, where's the best place for them to come and find you? I have my own website. It's mintoero.com. Mintoero is the name of my business. It means mint color in Japanese. Ah, okay. I used to be like in J fashion when I was like a fashion blogger and I always had a nickname ah, with mint in it. So that makes sense. And then uh, I post a lot of the uh, research I'm doing on LinkedIn. So I'm Jennifer Carlson on there. I also share it to the company page for my on LinkedIn too, usually. For any beauty brands that, you know, I'm happy to have a chat, you can book that through my website. I also have a blog where I share some content on the same website. And uh, if you're interested in being considered for the Beauty Design Awards, you can contact us through that and uh, send some products since we're still working on finding the ones for this year. Oh, exciting. Oh, well, well, I, I think I'll have a chat with you about that off air because that, yeah, that sounds really exciting from our viewpoint as well as a brand. Oh, Jennifer, thank you so much. I feel like there's loads more that we could talk about. So um, maybe I'll have to get you back on in a future episode. For sure. If you would like to, because I think there's lots of kind of avenues we could go off into. But it's been really nice to sort of stay fairly tight and true to understanding more about what you do. And yeah, and your values out there as well and how you're helping brands. So thank you so, so very much. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to come back. We didn't even talk about skincare routines and... Uh... <gasps> I am a, skin, exactly. a huge skincare junkie too. So I have so <laughs> many products and we'll have to talk more. Well, that you're on because I think that would be a whole nother podcast episode, but maybe we should do some Instagram stuff together as well. That, that would be really For cool. Sure. So, oh, thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Coming next, it's the fly on the wall. 
Well, thank you for carrying on with listening to episode four of series two of The Skin Pod. I know I say this every time, but how have we got to this part and this stage in the podcast of series two already? Fly in the wall section. Uh, So this is where you get to have a little bit of a nosy into the types of conversations with clients that happen within the treatment room surrounding. But actually this week, I'm going to be a little bit, a little bit self-indulgent, like I'm not already self-indulgent with doing a whole podcast. Um, However, a lot of people have said to me, don't really know your background fully. Uh, A lot of people do know that, but a lot of people don't. So I actually thought, well, this week, the fly on the wall is going to be me and about me uh, and my background and why I do what I do. And I talk a lot actually about the fact that I am, I was an acne sufferer. I actually also suffer with psoriasis as well. So first of all, all of my kind of skin treatments and my background comes from a very empathetic place of truly understanding because I have and do live with skin issues myself. So it actually made me a better therapist, I think. It's why I chose to specialise in all things skin health and continued and progressed my qualifications postgraduately after my initial beauty therapy training some, oh my goodness, 26 years ago, to really focus on skin health because I was actually living through that myself. And I was working for a really big international skincare brand as their account development manager and the trainer. So I was training other therapists and doctors and nurses um, in their products and in their approaches. And I covered the whole of the southeast of England at that time. But I was absolutely plagued with really bad acne. I would cake on makeup as much as I could, um, although I did thankfully get into the world of mineral makeup as part of that that role, actually. Uh, we ended up distributing a very, very well-known mineral makeup brand. And and actually, although I was a bit miffed because I was like, oh, I don't want to do makeup. I hated doing makeup at college. I was actually also really grateful because it meant I could use something that would camouflage my acne, but actually also you know, not kind of undo all of the work that I was doing myself to try and heal this condition. And it was really tough because I was representing, ironically, a brand that specialised in acne as being, you know, an issue that it could really help. And yet I was wandering around with a face full of acne. But I also very quickly become to understand that there were so many different factors that were influencing acne. And I it took me many, many years to work out what mine was. I thought there was a bit of a genetic predisposition to it, but I looked at every avenue. I didn't go the medication route and it really did help me to then develop my own signature facial approach and facial treatment philosophy, which I still use today some 16 years later of setting up my skin clinic, my skin practice. I train other therapists in that process. And it's a belief that we are, of course, you know, it's an obvious one really, but we're very individual. We're all unique. And acne as an issue is very individual and very unique. So we may all wander around with inflammation and spots and oily skin and blockages, but it will be coming from 
a very different, normally systemic reason. And for me, I realised that actually a lot of it was coming from stress and some trauma, perhaps that had happened that sort of gave rise to that condition. It was definitely tangled up with really poor gut health, poor lifestyle, poor diet. I loved my job when it was um, my skin was at its worst, but it was also probably the worst lifestyle I've ever had in my sort of mid to late 20s. So my facial treatment philosophy was built around the fact that I understood you couldn't just look at the surface. You had to look at people three dimensionally. You have to look at the science of that person, the advanced anatomy and physiology of how their skin is functioning and how we can get it to function better for itself. You have to look at them scientifically. You know, you have to look at their medical history, what medication they're on. And then, of course, you have to bring in those strong nutritional elements um, into that as well. What they're eating, more importantly, what they're absorbing and, of course, holistically, their lifestyle, their sleep, how they tick as a person. There's some natural psychology built into that treatment process. And I always say if I had the time haha, or I had my time again, actually, would I have tried to somehow carve out you know, some some work around psychology. I mean, yes, that would have been amazing, along with, you know, a nutritional therapy degree. But there just was never time for that at that time. But it's such an integral part of my philosophy to getting results. So that's sort of one side of, of what I do. And I have my skin therapy business that's up and running, as I say, has been for 16 years. And I, I love that. I'm still very hands on with clients. But the rest of the time is taken up with this. Uh, So, you know, building and growing the podcast, but also the formulation of my skincare range as well, which has been a real labour of love for, well, probably about 18 years, actually, maybe even longer. My husband would say longer. And it was a real pipe dream. It was something that, you know, I always used to think, oh, you know, one day I'll have a range of my own that... I've created. It will be my ideas. It will be from all of those thousands of faces that I've treated over the years, listening to the likes and the dislikes from those clients, you know, literally from the horse's mouth. You know, what do those people want to put on their skin and use and why? And what ingredients do I feel are superior and just, you know, amazing for actually getting really, really great results? And then seven, eight years ago, I decided, wow, you know, I've either got to just let all of these reams and reams of notebooks go and just look back and, oh, that was a nice little hobby. I enjoyed that bit of research or I've got to do something with this. And that's what I decided to do. And that was the start. Oh, I'm going to use that word journey. But my goodness, it really has been a journey, a massive learning curve, highs and lots of big lows a real battle with, you know, lots of uh, things going wrong in terms of, well, not wrong, actually, because we learn from those processes, don't we? But challenges, things challenging me. And I think almost the universe saying, how much do you really want this? Do you want this to happen? Because if you do, you're going to have to work a bit harder because here comes another bump in the road that's going to stop you at the moment. So I feel really grateful for the fact that I found my drive, my resilience, my determination to keep going because there were definitely times 
where I could have quite easily have given up. But I didn't. And uh, yeah, earlier this year in 2022, we launched not all five products that we'd hoped to, but we started with the cleanser, the holy grail of your skincare routine. And we've just drip fed it out. And I'm delighted to say that product number two, the hydrator, is also uh, now out and available. And there are three more, three more ready to go. But we have to we have patience and we just have to wait and, you know, bootstrap and and grow the brand gradually. And uh, yeah, we will be definitely bringing you some more. So a little bit of an insight into my career, which has been very varied, all within the beauty industry. I've taught beauty therapy. As I said, I've worked for big brands. I've run other people's businesses. I'm board director for other brands. So I feel really blessed to have been able to carve out a career in something in an industry that I do truly love. Well, I just found that conversation absolutely fascinating with Jennifer. I, I, I now kind of understand, kind of, she says, what Jennifer is all about and what she does for brands. And yeah, I can really do understand the value of that. And if I'm honest, before I interviewed her, I was, I was just really intrigued as to what she did and how she operated. But I think it's such a brilliant service that she offers beauty brand founders and it's fascinating isn't it that you know you can look at those brands now and shed light on how they come up with some of their statistics their strategies the people that are behind all of that amazing data yeah analysis as well so uh yeah do make sure that you check uh jennifer out on her instagram she's very active over there as she's on linkedin as well which is where i originally found her See you soon.